Welcome to Things to Know. I'm Luca, and on this show, we talk to the people that make the Thingdoms what it is. Today, we're talking to someone that needs no introduction. For our extra special 10th episode, we're talking to the one and only Scott Commoners. Scott is a professor of market design at Harvard University and works on the side to help crypto projects build out gamification and to better understand the markets and ecosystems that they exist in. I hope you enjoy this interview, and more importantly, I hope you learn something. Thanks for coming on and joining us today. Why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? I'm Scott Commoners. Uh, I teach at Harvard Business School and in the Harvard Economics Department, and I study the design of markets and marketplaces. And then within the NFT world, I'm involved in a whole bunch of different projects. I'm an advisor to the Thingdoms team, uh, also a Subdux holder, an advisor to Hungry Wolves, uh, Chain Runner, and, and part of several other projects as well. So how did you end up teaching and working at Harvard? Um, well, uh, I mean, I guess I, you know, I studied there undergrad and, and grad um, and sort of the set, the sort of the, the totality of the arc of things I studied um, put me on a path that sort of made me like, luckily, like very sort of a, a good fit for, uh, for what we do in the entrepreneurial management unit. Because uh, I studied market design and in my graduate program, I took the, you know, I was sort of in this business economics PhD program, which is a joint program between the economics department and the business school, you get sort of an economics PhD and then approximately a third of an MBA. And in my MBA courses, I discovered that the vast majority of market design, market design is using economics to, you know, and, and, and adjacent fields, computer science, applied math to improve the functioning of real world markets. And I discovered the vast majority of it is done by entrepreneurs, right? The academic research field of market design has done a lot of work in large-scale public projects or sort of like large-scale like nonprofit efforts, and even inside of large companies, right? Uh, companies like Microsoft and Facebook were very early to hire market designers to help think about their internet business and advertising and so forth. But you know, I took a course called Launching Tech Ventures, and it was full of people who were designing marketplaces, and I realized that you know, our research field, this thing that I'd spent years studying, didn't really have a language to talk to these types of market designers directly. And so I set out to try and figure that out, right? Like sort of, I wanted to build a course on entrepreneurial marketplace design. And that sort of quickly brought me back to HBS, you know, it's a huge honor, right? Like it's totally wild. Um, but like the, the professor I had from this launching tech ventures course, and I just kept talking for like several years about like how we would build this class. And then eventually they hired me to, to build it. That is beyond fascinating. So I'm in university right now. Um, and I'm in a, a weird custom design program. So I, I designed my own curriculum. So it's very interdisciplinary. What fascinates me about what you're working on is it seems to pull from and then communicate into so many different fields. How did you go from mathematics as an undergrad, getting exposed to these worlds, but like what was the process of starting to delve into all of these different disciplines and academic silos and pull that all together? Yeah, that's a great question. So my early background is in number theory, uh, which is a, a branch of theoretical math that sort of studies the 
properties of the integers and other number systems and sort of the, the beautiful patterns that are encoded in, in, in numbers and, and high dimensional, you know, geometric structures and so forth. Um, and I still love number theory. I'm actually like very actively engaged in it to this day. Um, but in college, what I discovered is that a lot of mathematicians sort of build in these like vertical towers, right? They get very focused on something very specific. And like you reach a point where you're, you know, sort of on, on the top of some very high tower, but it's really hard to like, you know, sort of jump from one tower to another, right? Like sort of math has this very vertical structure. Whereas economics, which I discovered by accident, by the way, a bunch of my math friends took this course that's, you know, sort of basically microeconomics for math majors, uh, you know, and they loved it. And they're like, Scott, you've got to take this class. And I was like, okay, that sounds like fun. Why not? Um, you know, I, economics as a field is sort of a plateau. It's a, it's a way of thinking about the world and sort of a, a methodological and an intellectual toolkit. And once you have that toolkit, you can think about anything. And that was really exciting to me, right? I liked the idea that I was going to be able to constantly re reinvent what I was excited about and like bring my sort of mental sort of organization and ideas to everything. Um, and indeed, right? Like, you know, within economics, you could reinvent yourself on a regular basis or like focus on whatever the biggest problem is. You know, I spent a lot of the last, you know, two years helping think about vaccine innovation, development, and delivery. Um, and, and in parallel, right, it was doing a bunch of work on crypto and thinking about, you know, sort of marketplace design, you know, uh, to address inequality. It's just an incredibly flexible discipline. Um, and so I phased into economics and then... I ended up, you know, sort of, again, sort of through, through good advising and a lot of luck, I ended up in, in sort of two market design experiences very early. Uh, the summer before my senior year of college, I worked with uh, Susan Athey, who's just an extraordinary economist on, on every dimension. Talk about someone who reinvents themselves, right? Like every five years, she like, you know, starts another field. Um, and she had just been named chief economist of Microsoft and was like disentangling all of these puzzles in their internet business. And she would like every week just sort of throw a ton of like new puzzles at her research assistant team. And like, we would be like digging through like, you know, sort of blue sky, like open theory questions on like, you know, everything from like how they should think about their ad pricing to, you know, sort of how some of these like internal underlying auctions worked and like, you know, sort of online search and everything it was so cool. Um, and then the, you know, the next semester, I took the, my first ever formal course in market design, where Al Roth, who's another extraordinary, extraordinary scholar, um, and is, is responsible for like a lot of the development of modern market design. He worked on the design of the medical residency match and, you know, some of the first school choice, the sort of centralized school choice design work. And, um, and Al presented this stuff called matching theory, which is the theory of how we organize and, and clear markets where, you know, it doesn't, you, you don't just choose what you want, but like the other side has to choose you. So think about like a labor market, a job market, you know, you're looking for jobs and you want a job that you want and, and they want, you know, employees that they want and you have to make a match. Um, and the cool thing about matching theory is it's built on this extraordinarily beautiful math that just like fit in my brain so perfectly. Like it's just like, you know, I'm watching this first lecture, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is what I'm doing with my PhD in. And like those two together sort of, I got excited about, you know, economics as a way of thinking about the world. It says, 
people respond to incentives, you know, sort of markets like help, you know, goods or, or services reach the people who, who value them for, you know, under, under certain conditions. Like it's a way of thinking about the world, but market design is sort of a wrapper around economics that says economics is a tool for making markets work better, for creating new types of market opportunities that never existed before. That is a fascinating story and approach to the field as a whole. Um, very structural, like looking at the playing field, looking at the actors. I think what I find so interesting about your work in particular is it, it has the aspects of the logic and the math, but it also understands a deep or also requires a deep understanding of kind of the social and, and business implications of everything that's happening above the math, right? Um, how do you balance those factors when diving into, for example, like the supply chain research that you were doing around COVID, or even when you're looking at the research around like stable coins versus, you know, floating price coins that you did. Um, how do you balance all these different factors? It's a great question. I mean, the first thing you have to do is just be very, very method agnostic and listen very closely to what sort of the market is telling you, right? Like I tell all of my students, you have to like go in and do some ethnography. You have to talk to people in the market and get a sense of like how they think about it and what problems they're trying to solve and like what the, you know, sort of what the sense of value and, and social optimum and all these things look like from the, you know, sort of from inside the market. And then once you get a sense of what the opportunities are and what the challenges are, you want to be super method agnostic, right? Like sometimes the right tool is a simple economic theory model that isolates some core dynamics and, and makes it possible to sort of reason about like what's driving the market failure and how you might fix it through like a, a change to the structure of contracts or the, the structure of the ecosystem. Um, sometimes the right tool is, you know, extremely empirical, right? Like everything sort of depends on some fine, like, you know, sort of estimate of numerical parameters. And like, you really have to go in and learn that. And other times, you know, sometimes the, you know, the, the tool might be, you know, messaging, right? It might be that like, actually like the real problem is people are confused or they don't understand like, you know, sort of the opportunities available to them. And then you're, you're building like communication tools and communication interventions. Um, and then just in my own head, right? Like one of the absolutely wonderful and like the greatest privileges of, of being in this field is that I can get up and be any of these things I want, right? I'm constantly working on a set of problems where the questions are deep questions of theory and a set of problems where, you know, what's really like the challenge is all practitioner, like sort of like, you know, detailed, like often even like reading the team's code to sort of think about like, you know, how the system works and what incentives it creates. Um, and I can just sort of like, I have the great luck to be able to get up. And if I feel like a mathematician that day, I can be a mathematician. And if I feel like an entrepreneur, I can be an entrepreneur. So I have to pose the question, why academia in this case, right? Because it sounds like this skill set and the knowledge that you've accumulated is unbelievably valuable to a, a number of different actors, right? Like so many companies, so many different organizations. Why academia and, and why Harvard and the projects you're working on specifically? So the incredible thing about being an academic is that you have the opportunity to achieve impact in your like, you know, and, and scale your impact through all of the students you interact with, right? Like 
the most valuable thing I do is my like advising sessions with students where they come in and they're trying to figure out like either a specific puzzle, like in their startup, they're trying to solve X or like a, a meta puzzle, like, you know, in their lives, they're trying to solve Y and helping them disentangle that and like sort of giving them a little bit of a flavor of how I think about the world and, and how that might help them solve their own puzzles and, and sort of scale their own futures is just incredible. And meanwhile, they're constantly, you know, causing me to up my game, right? Like I'm surrounded, and this is, this is again, one of the incredible privileges of being able to teach at Harvard is I'm constantly surrounded with students who are like so ahead of me on whatever the heck it is they're thinking about that like I am learning nonstop just, you know, it's, it's like the Red Queen and in, in, uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, right? Like you have to run at the top of your, you know, at, at top speed just to stay in place, right? Like I am learning nonstop and like thinking so hard just to be able to like help them actualize themselves. Um, so it's intellectually fascinating and it's a real opportunity for scale. Um, and incidentally, I should say that's the same also as like with all of my like entrepreneurial advising, both the formal and informal stuff, right? Like if I can help a team, if I can spend like half an hour, an hour of my time to help a team, like, you know, solve some major puzzle that's going to like let them 10x or even better, 100x, right? That's a huge amount of impact, like in marginal value for that hour. And academia gives me a lot of springboard uh, to do that. Yeah. That makes sense. It's It must be a very rewarding activity, like a very rewarding thing to see play out. Let's pivot a little bit. How does crypto come into your world? Like, How do you start to see it? What draws you to it? Well, the funny thing is I've been interested in crypto for years because of its potential for creating new markets and new types of transactions, right? Like my, my job is literally to think about, you know, sort of new ways of solving market frictions and, you know, crypto arrived on the scene with great promise to do that. So I've been paying attention to it for years and years, although, you know, I, one of the problems, you know, if you're an academic rather than like someone who spends all their time in finance, you don't think, wow, this is curious. I should like buy a ton of this stuff back when it was really <laughs> cheap. Whoops. Um, the, uh, you know, like I had breakfast with Vitalik at a conference and I walked out of it and was like, wow, like that Ethereum thing sounds really cool. Uh, you know, I should like keep watching that. And what I should have thought was, wow, that Ethereum thing sounds really cool. I should buy some of that. Anyhow, um, the, um, so I've been watching it. Uh, but the funny thing is I was initially on record as a pretty major skeptic. Uh, and the reason was that people were just sort of using it to decentralize things that worked pretty well when centralized. And decentralization is costly, right? If you think about like the, you know, all of the transaction frictions in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum and lots of other, you know, sort of crypto infrastructure, you know, those costs didn't seem to, you know, balance, you know, sort of be balanced by the benefits of decentralization for a lot of early crypto applications. Um, and so I sort of kept saying, you know, I had all these like entrepreneurs like showing up in my office hours and I was like, guys, like, look, you don't need a token for this. Like this thing you were describing works fine if you just have like an electronic ledger. Um, but gradually really cool applications and application opportunities started to emerge. Uh, and the first one I got involved in myself um, my, my very good friend and, and collaborator, Christian Catalini, 
invited me to um, help him and, and the broader team think about the, the Diem project. This was um, originally called Libra, and it was, it was Facebook's uh, cryptocurrency initiative. Um, footnote, uh, you know, the like Libra slash Diem was run by an independent association of which Facebook was a member. Facebook sort of, you know, sort of hosted the, um, this through its, um, you know, crypto wallet originally called Calibra, now called Novi. Um, and, you know, sort of disclaimer and footnote. Um, and like there we were thinking about, you know, how you design protocols and sort of like basic, you know, sort of basic design challenges at the outset for something that we hoped could become, you know, sort of large scale transaction infrastructure for the internet, right? Like, you know, sort of like a transaction layer that's sort of like the routing algorithm that stores all the information on the internet, but, but instead for transactions. Um, you know, sort of fundamental transaction infrastructure for the internet and for the world. Um, and the challenge there is that the thing it looks like at scale, right? You're sort of like dream of where it gets. You have to think really hard about what the path to get there looks like and what all of that implies for the initial design, because you have to bake the design in at, at the start. And so we were thinking about sort of this like joint micro macro like research question about like, how do you design a, a you know, a transaction protocol for scale? Uh, if you have to start small and like gain market share and eventually become large. Um, so we did a bunch of basic research uh, there and, and, you know, and I had the incredible honor and, and you know, fun to like, you know, work with the team and, and have a little bit of input into the protocol itself. Um, and as I was getting involved in that, I really started reading, right? I sort of like started trying to like really understand like what the current state was, because this was like one of the first, you know, this idea of like backbone transaction infrastructure for the world has tremendous opportunity associated with it, right? Like you think about financial inclusion, you, if you have such a layer and it's sort of mostly hosted in places with strong institutions, um, then you can essentially extrapolate those strong institutions to places that have much weaker financial institutions. And like, you know, or, or, and similarly, like, you know, sort of create, you know, access to financial infrastructure for the unbanked, like it's really powerful. And I started then thinking about consumer crypto. Um, the funniest thing though, you know, so the, I got into NFTs through a funny side zigzag, which is I, um, you know, over the last two years, like wrote a, a puzzle column for Bloomberg opinion. And we sort of, you know, picked topics for the column that were sort of in the news and sort of, uh, you know, potentially of interest to the types of readers at Bloomberg. Uh, and so one thing that was very on the radar screen were NFTs. And so we actually did two puzzles themed around NFTs, one uh, around the time of the Beeple art sale, and then one over the summer about PFP projects. Um, and in that, you know, and in, in, in the PFP article, I mentioned the Supducks and like, they reached out and were like, dude, like you should really like get into this. Um, and, you know, so, and, and, you know, some of them did like fan art. I still have as my discord PFP, like a, you know, a subducts piece that uh, Mark Lar did. Um, you know, I, uh, I started looking into these and I realized that like, this was an incredible application category. And it's funny, Christian Catalini and, and um, one of my former students, now a postdoc at Stanford, Ravi Jagadisan, and I had written about this sort of at, at the, the, as the coda of an article we were writing, um, you know, or we wrote um, earlier. The interesting thing about NFTs relative to cryptocurrency is that 
cryptocurrency requires very widespread adoption before it attains value, right? Like a currency is only useful if you could expect to trade it for goods and services in lots of different contexts. Ideally, just like anywhere, right? Like, you know, why is a dollar useful? Because like pretty much any store in the United States will take dollars, right? Nobody says, you know, sorry, I only take doubloons. Um, but as a result of that, like the currency crypto it's going to take a very long time to sort of be useful to the average person, right? Like it's useful as a store of value if you think a lot of other people are going to treat it as a store of value right now. But as a currency, it sort of doesn't work until it becomes mainstream. And so a lot of its value is like way downstream. Sorry for using stream in two different places and, you know, it's in the same sentence. Um, by contrast, NFTs sort of work in the opposite direction. So like an NFT is like an agreed upon property, right? Right. It's sort of like, you know, a community of people agree that this NFT has meaning. And the second they agree that it has meaning, now it has value, right? Like, you know, and you only need to establish that agreement initially among the set of people who might know that they want to, to own the object. So, you know, a very small cadre of people can create initial value among a, you know, around an NFT associated to a piece of digital art, say, because the people who are most interested in doing that are the people who value the art the most. And so, whereas crypto only gains value at scale, or cryptocurrency rather, only gains value at scale, NFTs gain value starting from very small communities. And then the value grows as people have more desire to be in those communities and the community sort of like expands outwards. And that's a much easier sort of launch strategy, right? Like you're not asking like, hey, I want everyone in the world to use this thing. Instead, you're asking, I want, you know, the 10 or 100 or 1,000 people most enthusiastic about this project to use this thing right now. And then as the value of the project grows, more people become enthusiastic and that puts up, you know, pushes up the value even for the original holders. So is there a real world market comparable here? Like, is there a place in the real world where this type of dynamic exists, obviously, other than, say, the traditional art market? It's a great question. I mean, I like to think of NFTs as bringing together a lot of different dynamics, right? So there's the collectibles aspect, which is very much like collectibles, right? Um, you know, if people decide that Pokemon cards are valuable as, the, as they have, um, then you know, that drives up the value of Pokemon cards. And as more people get excited about Pokemon, like, you know, especially the earliest, rarest Pokemon cards become even more valuable. And there's also a sense of a shared text, uh, sort of an idea that like everybody who is into this thing sort of understands something intuitively about other people who are into it, right? So like, you know, I, um, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, kids were going to like a Pokemon tournament and I like ran into them on the way. I was like, oh gosh, like you have a binder of Pokemon cards? Like, can I see? And and my colleague was a little horrified uh, as I was like saying like, oh wow, like, holy cow, like that's a really great Machop. Like, um, you know, I used to have, you know, uh, I used to have like a, uh, you know, a, you know, an unlimited edition Charizard. And like, oh my gosh, you had an unlimited edition Charizard? Like, no way. Like, and, and so I could immediately like, you know, bond with these kids, um, you know, because we both spoke Pokemon. Um, and so there's a sense of that as well, that like among collectors in a given domain, there's sort of a, a shared enthusiasm and a little bit of sort of like automatic community around the fact that you're all into this thing. Um, but at the same time, um, 
And then there's there's a little bit of the investment asset component as well, but like most collectibles are not investment assets, right? They're the the average collectible, even like the average like Pokemon card, you know, doesn't end up being as worth as much as a you know sort of first edition mint graded Charizard or something. Um, but there's also NFTs also wrap in this investment asset component um, that you see a little bit more in like the fine art market, um, and but but also like. You know, for any new asset class, you see some amount of like, you know, speculative investment. Um, but also it's a little bit like a digital deed, right? Like an, an analogy there might be, you know, sort of investment in, in land or real property or something, except in the digital sphere, right? It's like this is the way to invest in goods um, that previously would be hard to create property rights around, right? Like, you know, how do we create property rights over land? You can't just sort of, you know, pick up the land and like put it in your suitcase. We have a government, you know, process by which, you know, a document is certified as giving you ownership of the land. This is sort of a, a similar thing, right? There's like a, you know, computerized process that certifies you as the, you know, sort of as holding the thing that people have agreed represents ownership. Um, and so there's that as well, right? Like it's sort of like, how do you create investment in digital goods like music or like art or something of that form? Um, which are things people invest in in the physical world, uh, but are hard to invest in, 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 you know, in, in the digital space. And then the last thing that's sort of a, a different dimension is programmability, right? So like NFTs are upgradable and expandable in a way that, you know, some collectibles are and some investment assets are, I suppose. But, but really, this is a central and, and core component. Both you can tack them on, you know, sort of tack things onto them, right? You can airdrop to someone who holds an NFT or you can add an animation to make it cooler. But I think even more powerfully, you can use them to interact with systems, right? You can build a digital community among all of the holders by giving, creating a token-gated Discord channel that now everyone can get, you know, sort of who holds the thing can get into. Um, and that's something that is very hard to do with physical collectibles, right? Um, there are versions of it that that existed pre-crypto, of course, right? There are like, you know, online, like, you know, sort of chat rooms that you had to buy membership in and so forth. Um, but this is a way to do it that has much less friction than than ever before, right? If you want to gain access to the community and, and your value or your willingness to pay for access is above the, the floor price, you can just buy in and the transaction happens immediately and you're there in a way that like if you had like a limited edition you know subscription based chat room or whatever it's very hard to like even think about the mechanics of exchanging subscriptions the element that really really interests me that you discussed there they're all interesting but the the one that stands out is the programmability aspect i know you've spent a lot of time uh helping and consulting and working with different projects in the nft space to kind of build out gamification or even just kind of the logic of how their projects are going to be structured in terms of utility and access to the community. Um, I know you can't leak alpha. Could you talk a little bit about how those relationships started to pop up and in particular, um, how you came into contact with the Thingdoms team and then a little bit about the experience of what you actually do when you're, you're asked to help in situations like that? Sure. Uh, yeah, so definitely won't leak any alpha or I'll do my best anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but I can certainly tell you about what it's like to advise teams on these sorts of, you know, utility systems. Um, basically it's a conversation. It's a little bit like what I described with, um, you know, Diem, 
right? It's a conversation about what do you want your ecosystem to look like at scale? What is it that people are going to derive value from, from participating in your, you know, in your community? And you then sort of backwards induct from there into a theory about sort of, you know, what the different elements and aspects are that, that lead there. So, for example, um, a lot of teams, and this is, this is I'm, not, I'm, I'm not referencing any specific team I've, I've worked with here, but this is just sort of like a generic thing that I get a lot of questions about, right? A lot of teams are trying to think about, like, what is the role of a, you know, an internal token for the project? And how should we think about what it's going to be worth and like what it can be used for and like how it's produced and, and the fundamentals of, you know, a, a fungible token inside the project are pretty similar across projects at some level, right? Like what does an internal or external currency do, right? People use it to exchange for stuff and how is its value determined? Its value is determined by how much people want to exchange it for things and, and or think they might want to exchange it for things in the future relative to this, the scale of supply, right? So if there's too much of the token relative to the extent that people want to use it, then its value in, in, in dollar terms goes down. Um, and if there's uh, you know too little of it, then its value might go way up. And note that like if you're running an online game economy or something, both of these might be bad, right? So if the token is too, um, you know, sort of too low value, that sort of means you're not providing enough things for people to do with it, right? And people might like become disengaged. And that's, and in that sense, like the low value is also sort of an index on, on how well your game is running. Um, but also if the token value is too high, people might be unwilling to spend it, right? And then they might disengage for a different reason, right? They might stop playing the game because it's like more valuable to like hold the token as a store of value. And so this sort of implies like sort of two natural like boundaries, you know, on, on, you know, if what you're doing is running an online game economy with an internal token that somehow like is distributed according to your holdings of an NFT, this like, you know, has two sort of walls you don't want to smack up against. And so then you, then you're sort of solving like an optimization problem, right? You're solving like a, you know, how do we ensure that the supply of the token and it's, and it's liquidity in the market sort of is is right and in balance relative to the types of game features we're releasing. And like, um, and, and teams come up with different solutions as a function of what their game economy is going to be and so forth, right? Like if, if playing the games sucks in and burns a ton of the tokens, then you, you, you need to be printing them at some frequency. If instead like the games are more like, you know, sort of trading tokens among people that maybe you want your supply to be more fixed. Um, and so I help teams puzzle through these types of questions. Um, and, and I should note, it's not just limited to, you know, NFT community projects, right? Like there are similar work, um, my, my co-author and, and former student, uh, John Esber and I uh, wrote an article on reputation token design. And, you know, I spend as much time talking to teams that are trying to build reputation systems as I talk to teams that are trying to build game economies, right? Like, and there, there's a real challenge because the naive, like sort of the first thing you think to do is like print a token that just represents reputation and then also people can trade. But the problem is if people can like just buy the reputation token, then it doesn't serve as clearly as a sign of reputation anymore, which can actually tank the value of the token itself. Um, and so you can get into this weird, uh, you know, 
bad equilibrium where you've produced a token that you're giving to your like big contributors and they immediately want to divest themselves of it because like its value is really, really low and falling because people are divesting themselves of it. And so like, you know, so there's a lot of like economic reasoning like that. Incidentally, what we recommend is instead you should have a two token system with like a reputation token that's non-transferable and that like spins off a fungible currency that you can use for whatever the application of the currency is and in proportion to how much reputation somebody has. Anyway, um, so I help teams think about those sorts of things. Um, you asked about the relation to Thingdoms in particular. Uh, first of all, how I got chatty with them, I mean, I met first Luke through the uh, Subtex community and of course also B-Love. Um, and Luke and I worked together on a series of puzzles for the Subducks during NFT NYC. Um, and it just been more generally like chatting. We got along super well. Um, and this was just as he was putting together sort of the, you know, the design and concept of, of, of Thingdoms. It was right around the time that they released the name of the project. Um, and like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I was in the Discord. Holy cow, that was like such a day. Um, the, uh, and, you know, as we were talking, what was really exciting to me about the way, you know, Luke um, and Owen and like, you know, sort of everyone was conceptualizing Thingdoms was that the hope was for the utility to not be unidimensional, right? Like a lot of projects, like every, um, you know, every token has the same utility, maybe in different scale, right? So if you have a rarer one, it maybe has more of it or whatever, or, um, you know, there's like a series A and a series B or something, but like, but like loosely all the tokens do the same thing. Whereas in Thingdoms, and again, I, I can't, I can't, you know, tell you guys anything yet, but in the Thingdoms, the different, you know, characteristics are going to imply different forms of utility that evolve and change. And the intellectual puzzle of balancing all of that, of making it like sort of, you know, fun to play and like sort of fun to explore and like some of it appear, right? The other thing we've, we've said explicitly is we're not always going to announce when utility has appeared. It might just sometimes happen, right? Like, you know, the challenge of like making this world sort of like balanced and, and exciting to explore and engage in, you know, at the same time as like, you know, building a global brand, right? Like it's sort of like simultaneously like a world building and a brand building exercise and everything sort of has to like solve this like beautiful, like, you know, sort of functional equation or something. Uh, it's just like so much fun. Um, and so that was how I like, you know, I, I got excited and we, we kept talking and at some point they were like, you know, dude, like we should do this. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. That'd be awesome. I'm excited for the day when this information is all public uh, and the documentary finally comes out and we get a glimpse behind <laughs> the curtain at Thing all doc. the work that's gone into it. Let's zoom out a little bit as we kind of get close to the end here. We move sure. out 10 years. How do you see blockchain technology and NFTs kind of reshaping marketplaces? What do you hope has changed? What do you hope we're developing? Kind of your general thoughts. Great. Well, I mean, the first thing is I, I am a believer in a lot of the promise of Web3. Like I think um, people will own consumer crypto wallets, right? Like in the same way that today we have Facebook profiles and Twitter accounts and things, people will also have a crypto wallet. Um, and there will be a lot of consumer applications of it. Some of them financial transaction technology, right? Like I'm, I'm hoping there is like some like simple transaction layer that like you can do seamless, like, you know, fee-less transactions with, you know, lots of different businesses and things. 
But even more than that, I'm hoping that a lot of things that today are sort of digital exhaust that nobody owns, like the posts you make on Facebook or, or on you know Twitter or on some miscellaneous website, become assets that individuals can own and think about who actually owns, right? Like, and even, even just sort of things like, you know, the, the positive confirmation you get of your work at the office, right? Like if you make a PowerPoint that is viewed by like all of the senior executives in your company, the fact that you made a PowerPoint that was viewed by all the senior execs in your company could be a digital asset that lives in your like sort of personal profile that you can take with you when you're looking for new jobs or when you move from place to place. Um, and I think that really will, to some degree, happen, right? We will we'll have an economy, like an internet of ownership, where people are able now to own digital goods, um, you know, that represent a lot of their sort of experiences and engagement online and even offline, right? Like think about, you know, sports tickets or something, right? If you're a huge fan of some sports team and you go to like, you know, you already go, usually when you go to a stadium, you're now scanning like a thing on your phone that has a QR code that's your entry ticket. Well, what if all of those lived in your crypto wallet and now the, you know, the, the team could see who their big fans are and raffle something to holders, right? Even really simple applications like that are going to turn things that previously were just sort of like digital exhaust or digital, you know, there's data in your email that is that ticket that you've archived and you never think about again into like, you know, a wall of experiences that you can hold and like cherish. Um, and I think there's going to be real possibility there. And I think it's going to do some interesting things to the broader market, right? First of all, I think it's going to put some pressure on online platforms to make their systems more consumer friendly and more sort of, and, and their content they create more portable um, because it's going to be, you know, there's going to be pressure to be portable because some platforms will be very portable, right? And like, you know, if you buy an NFT in some proprietary NFT marketplace and can't use it as your Twitter profile photo, then like you're never going to want to buy in that proprietary NFT marketplace. And so they're going to, the, even the proprietary marketplaces are going to have to let you, you know, sort of point Twitter to that crypto wallet. Um, and then, you know, meanwhile, I think on the sort of on the supply side, on the creator side, like there's potential for this to enable people to actualize in, in themselves in a lot of new ways, right? Like, you know, it's not a coincidence that this has sort of started so heavily in digital art and digital music and so forth, because these are places where a lot of value was being created that nobody was able to capture. But now that you have like real digital goods, people actually can. And so I think that's going to be you know, sort of a real opportunity also. I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you'd like to connect with Scott, you can find them on Twitter at S Commoners. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can also find me on Twitter at It's Luca WM. I'd like to extend a huge thank you to Scott for joining us on the show today. The amount of insight you have into this space is unbelievable. And I learn something new every time I hear you speak. Thank you. And as always, a huge thank you to this entire community. None of this would be possible without you. It's unbelievable that we're on episode 10 already. I've enjoyed every moment I've spent interviewing the members of this community. You're all so interesting and have so many unique insights and points of view to bring to the table. Do good things, stay thingy, and I'll see you next week.